Well, good morning to all of you here and those of you that are joining us uh, on the live stream. Can you believe that uh, Christmas is only five days away? I mean, after the year that we've had, uh, which has felt forever, um, it's a refreshing time uh, to come to this moment in the season especially uh, and reflect on some of these uh, really great reminders that we've been covering, especially as we've been going through the Advent uh, themes of things like peace, joy, and hope. Uh, and so I've been encouraged by these reminders from week to week in my own uh, personal journey with God, because sometimes I think we can get so caught up in uh, things that are going on, whether things as they are currently or just generally uh, with life, and we can kind of let some of these important truths that the Christmas story has to offer to us and bring to us, uh, and they can kind of take sort of a, a backseat sometimes, and I'm, I'm just encouraged by this Christmas season uh, to be reminded of some of these things, especially uh, what we're going to be talking about today. Today we're on the fourth week uh, of Advent, and part of the theme for today is we'll be focusing on love. Um, and so I will admit, uh, out of the gate, there are lots of things uh, when it comes to love that I totally appreciate. Um, but along with that, there's also much that I continue to learn, that I don't fully uh, understand uh, and experience in all of its different ways. I mean, we talk about relationships uh, with people, especially significant others, with my wife particularly, when she does things for me, uh, whether they're out of the blue or, or just generally being an awesome human being, I'm taken aback sometimes by some of the, the amount of, of gratitude or, or graciousness she gives me, but also the love uh, that she has for me when she's gifted me something or a word of encouragement. It's just like an amazing reminder, and sometimes I take that step back, and I'm like, I don't understand uh, sometimes why you do what you do, but this love uh, that she has for me is, is an amazing uh, experience in that particular uh, component. From my human standpoint, uh, it's always fun to watch people as they, as they fall in love, as, as they journey with one another. Kind of, you don't know each other. They've started off, they're navigating that, that awkward, uh, journey at the beginning, but you see along the way as they begin to open their hearts to one another and they see, uh, where they stand with one another and they're expressing, uh, their intentions and stuff like that. It's, it's amazing to see that develop, uh, over that period of time. Love is a wonderful thing, uh, and many spend a great deal of time thinking about it, uh, pursuing it, processing it, and wanting to have it in their life at some point or another. And if there's any season uh, on our calendar year that really puts love on display, it's this one. Uh, it's not Valentine's Day. It's this one. Uh, because you see, there's something about this Christmas season, not this one particularly, but Christmas generally, uh, that causes many people to look at others in, in a way that maybe throughout the year is not always on their on their forefront. It's usually peripheral. But Christmas, it, it brings something to us where we, we see many treat others with a greater sense of worth, with value, with dignity. We see many give away some of their things, whether that's gifts or money, in order that others who don't have might have. We see hardened hearts melt in response to acts of kindness and generosity. Love is on display in more ways than one. And one of the things I love most about love is its capacity to change us. That when, when you experience love in your own life, it's really weird if you, don't, if you don't reciprocate it, but also that it doesn't affect you in any way whatsoever. That if someone says, I love you, or they've done something for you, to just be a hardened person to that, it's, it's odd. There's something within us that, that appreciates it, that longs for it, that's drawn to it. For me, it's on those difficult days 
uh, where either hard things have happened, complications rise up, or just circumstances that are out of my control arise. And they're out of my hands, and I can be bummed out. I can be brought down low, or I can be just totally discouraged. And my day could just be totally out the window in terms of its, its joy and happiness kind of thing. Just this weighed down. But the moment I'm telling you, when I get into my home, and my daughter Ellie runs to my arms and says, Daddy, I missed you. I love you. It just makes all of that junk nothing. It just washes all of that away. It's the best. Not because she's saying, I I don't pay her to do it. She does it because she loves me. And it just washes all of the struggle or whatever I've had throughout that day away. And that's one of the things I appreciate about love is not only that it can change, but that it can turn things around. It can take one of those hard days and make it better. And was it not a hard day all those years ago in that small town of Bethlehem where you had the hardships of Mary's pregnancy, the awkwardness uh, of what everyone might be saying or thinking about the unique situation that Joseph and her were in, traveling all of those miles, we read about it earlier in the census, having to go from point A to point B, didn't have cars back then, there was walking, long travel time, looking for a place to stay as soon as they got there, only to be told there's no more room left, and settling for a stable And within that stable, there was no doctors, no nursing staff. And the pains of giving birth with only Joseph to assist. Then that first cry, and then his name. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Here is love. Of all the difficult moments that those two experienced that on their journey, while all of them were valid, totally valid, They don't compare to that first moment of holding him. And it turned everything around. All of their hardship and experience, just being able to hold Jesus was like, what? That's nothing. This is everything. In the song, O Holy Night, I love this stanza where it says, Long lay the world in sin and error pining. This idea of longing for something. And then it says, Till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices. Our passage this morning uh, is found in 1 John chapter 4. Um, we'll be looking at verses 9 and 10. But before we take a look at those two verses in particular, uh, they spring out of, of John's wondrous theological statement in verse 8. He's talked at length throughout the, the book, 1 John, to whoever is reading it, a local church, or just it's being spread around. And this idea that's been, been sort of interwoven throughout it is this idea of love. Not only that God loves us, but that we're called to love one another. And as you get to this moment in chapter 4, John has just talked about what it means to love one another, what that looks like. And then he gets to this amazing statement, God is love. He's talked about what it means to love one another and ends that God is love. And this statement, as J.I. Packer, one of the greatest theologians, he puts it this way. He says, this statement is one of the most tremendous utterances in the Bible. There are many, but this one, it just has so much to it. It reveals to us something very significant about the nature of who God is and how he operates John, earlier in his letter, in the first chapter, uh, particularly in verse 5, states that God is light. 
So you have these two statements in, in this book alone. God is light and God is love. And we have to be careful, very careful on our sort of understanding of what that actually means. To say God is love does not also mean that love is God. Love in all of its thing, the, the feeling, the emotion, that is not God. God is love, but love is not God. And the same is true of light. Some have drawn that conclusion and to their, their misunderstanding theologically, it, it totally eschews what it actually means to understand God is love. God is light, for example, points to the fact that God is holy. He's pure. And when you talk about light, you turn a light on in a dark place, automatically the darkness is gone. The light just blows it all away. To talk about God's light is not to say light is God, but that God brings this amazing element of holiness and purity, light, into our world and into our lives. There is no darkness in him at all, as it says in the same verse in chapter 1. And when we say God is love, it points to an amazing truth. And as A.W. Tozer puts it, he says it this way, when it says God is love, it means that love is an essential attribute of God's being. It means that in God is a summation of all love, so that all love comes from God. And it means that God's love, we might say, conditions all his other attributes, so that God can do nothing except he does it in love. And we find that hard. I think from human beings, from the vantage point, that's probably one of the most often asked questions. If God really loved us, why does X, Y, Z happen? If God loves, why, 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 why? And we realize that in these statements, what Tozer is getting at is all of these things are operating, and while we don't appreciate the outcome of that operation, they're all operating from a heart of a God who loves. They aren't coming from a God who's malicious and wants to bring us harm, but a God who loves and longs for our best. All of God's attributes combined together, do not operate independently from one another. God's justice doesn't stand alone as God's justice, nor does his holiness or his grace or goodness. All of these attributes, his goodness, his mercy, his justice, his grace, they're all tied to his love. They flow from it. All of who God is and what he does comes from his love. God is love. It is an unfortunate misunderstanding from the human side uh, when we try to understand God's love from our vantage point. We are fallen. We are broken. It doesn't mean we can't understand love in all of its different components and capacities, emotions and feelings. We, we understand glimpses of it. But when we talk about God, one of his attributes is that he is incomprehensible. That is to say, we cannot fully understand who he is, or why he chooses to do the things he does. So when we talk about love, we can understand some of it, but to talk about an incomprehensible God means we will never fully understand the capacity, the depth, the width, the height, the length of that love. That ought not to discourage us, but to help us realize the depths of that love. They're unending. If God is eternal... As one of his attributes, so are the others, as is his love. But from the human vantage point, if we look around, we see that from our position, love can be very fleeting. We can feel love one day, and the next, a circumstances arise and I'm out. We see this happen all throughout our world. People falling in and out of love constantly. 
Love sometimes is, is played with in our world, the way they talk about it. It's just an emotion or it's a feeling you have. It comes and goes. But that is not the love we talk about when we talk about God's love. That might be our vantage point and our experience and our wrestling with it in all of its amazing qualities and all of its negative aspects that come with it. But it was a unique thing to the Greek world, to the audience that John was writing to. He was writing to believers of all different backgrounds, but to the Greeks especially. To hear about a God who loves and that his love isn't wrapped up in selfish pursuits, that was a mind-blowing thing for them at the time. Because you see, they followed a pantheon of gods. You had hundreds, thousands of different variations of different gods who, who operated in different capacities and had different qualities and different things. And these Greek gods were fairly flippy-floppy in their emotions. Moment to moment, their feelings depended on how much they were sacrificed to or how much adoration they were receiving or, or festivals that were being held in their name, celebrations. All this. They longed for human affection and adoration. And that was what spurred on their ego. It was almost as if from their vantage point as the gods, it would, their, their capacity to understand love or give love was contingent on whether or not human beings appreciated them or not. And so their emotions and their response to love was just this roller coaster. It was not a consistent thing. And so for John and, and the New Testament as a whole, to talk about God's description of love was a very unique thing. You have the different Greek words for love, but the one that John hones in on is the word agape. There's, a, uh, there's all the others, eros, and there's uh, where we get the word Philadelphia, phileo, which is that brotherly love. But what John says here about the word love is this agape word. And its descriptor contrasts sharply with the Greek gods of the time. One commentator writes on love, he says this, Love is more than a description of how you feel. Love is a word that involves your emotions, but more than that, the biblical concept of agape is a love that is unconditional, a love that seeks the highest good for the one who is loved, a love of total commitment. God's love for us is motivated by who he is, not by who we are. See, we change. We respond or we reject God's love and his advances of it in our lives. We choose that position. But God's love is unconditional. It is not contingent on how we choose to or not choose to respond to it. He loves us all the same. And this isn't to say that that last section where it's God does, God's not motivated by love by who we are, but by who he is. Yes, that is true. But he longs to lavish his love on us. We are affected by it. We do respond to it. Do you believe that God loves you unconditionally? This is a wrestling people all across have with God. Can you really love me in all of this, in all of who I am, to know my deepest, darkest thoughts, everything I've done, everything I'm going to do, and you can still love me? I don't buy it. I don't believe it. We find it hard to wrestle that because if someone did that to us or we did it to them, we know what the response would be. If I treated you like trash, it's only acceptable that you would not love me. And yet with God, we treat him sometimes poorly if we were honest enough. And yet he still loves us. We can't approach the throne of God and his grace and understand his love from our vantage point. It must be from his because it's a totally different outlook 
in view on what love truly is. That God loves you unconditionally. That He has His best thoughts and plans for you. And that those plans and thoughts flow from His gracious love. He proved it as much. We saw verse 8 and the next passages that we're going to have up on the screen in, in verses 9 and 10 of First John chapter 4 say this. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God is love. And it's an amazing uh, aspect of Scripture that from start to finish, it conveys a God who is consistently invested and involved in His creation, in us. That God doesn't just say, I love you superficially in hopes that our response to it is something He wants us to do, like some sort of malicious compliance, you know? I said I loved you, so you should do these things because I'm God. And he doesn't do it that way. He doesn't say, I love you superficially, hoping to get something out of us manipulatively. But that when he says, I love you, he proves it for us. And as the passage states, God's love was made manifest among us. His love was among us. That is an amazing thing. Because this God and his love are not far out there in some otherworldly place or in the cosmos on some high-end plane that we could never understand or obtain. But that God came down, born of man, with flesh and blood, skin and bones. He walked, he breathed, he laughed, he cried, he ate, he slept, he lived here on this earth. And John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The God of the universe who created all things with just a word and utterance stepped down into our world and dwelt with us. Us dirty, rotten sinners. How could God choose such a path, such a way? God who is light and love stepped down from all of His splendor and glory and in the greatest act of humility was born in a stable and slept on a manger, a feeding trough, For animals, not a golden crib, not golden sheets, on hay, in a stable. This is the amazing image John is presenting in these first few. Simple, if you just read it quickly, it seems you pass it by fairly quickly, but these are life-changing words. Our God dwelt and still dwells with us. But he didn't come just to experience our experiences and to say, "I, I know what you're going through. And then back off to heaven. He came down with purpose. And it literally changed everything. He was made manifest among us. But then we read right after that in verse 9. That God sent his only son into the world. So that we might live through him. So that we might live. This is the good news. This is the gospel message. This is the story of Christmas. That God didn't come into the world with fierce power, forcing everyone to concede and bow to Him. He could have, but He didn't. He came as a baby, fragile, weak, vulnerable, to show His love for us by living as we lived, that He would know as we know what it is like to be human, 
so that no one can say, God, you don't understand. Oh, yes, he does. He lived as you lived. He may not share 100% everything of your experience, but he knows what it means to be human. He knows our struggle. He knows what we feel. And we sang about this earlier. How many kings would do that? To step off of your throne. I mean, when you talk about heaven and where Christ was dwelling with the glory and splendor of the Father, to give that all up for a moment in time, would you, would you even do that for the best of us? Would any of us do that for the worst? Because he did. Why? So that we might live. And not just live. This, this all around us, this world we live in, this skin and bones, all of this here, many of us are alive. But many are not living. Jesus came and brought a message of hope that said, there is more than this. The things you see with your eyes, the things you feel with your hands, the the places you step, the things you eat, there is more than this. This isn't all there is. This is an amazing blessing that God gives us, that the fact we have roofs overhead, food on the table, clothes on our back, these are amazing blessings. But this is not all there is. There is more. He said, I have come that you may have life to the full. Many are alive, but not living. And sadly, this is a common experience for many in the family of God. If we could truly, really understand and experience, it's not enough just to understand God's love, but to experience it for yourself, to experience God's love for you, you would never be the same. You could not walk away having experienced all that God has said, done, and given to you and walk away unchanged. This is the love of God. Many get saved and carry on as if nothing has changed. And yet if we truly understand that God loves us unconditionally, it ought to and should change everything. You are a child of the King of Kings if you have given your life to Christ. There was a story uh, of a young boy uh, who lived on the streets. He was homeless and didn't have a place to live. Um, He made effort every day just to survive. He got his food from garbage bins, scraps, and his clothes were just the rags that he could find wherever he was. And one day a local man happened to come upon him, and this, this man happened to be of, of some substance, had some wealth, and saw this, man, this poor boy just begging and, and, and just living day to day, just trying to get by. And it says he had sympathy on him. And he called one of his servants and said, we need to bring this boy home. He has nowhere to go. We need to look after him. So they brought him home. And coming into this huge house, the boy looked at a room upon room, rooms, rooms, filling the house. This was a massive house. And he was just floored. Amazing. He had never experienced or seen anything quite like this. And the owner of the house directed his servants to take the boy's rags and replace them with finer clothing. And then dinner time came. And it was a spread. Not having to go to the garbage bin to hope to find something to eat, that food for him to eat as much as he could take in. And then this boy was full, like he had never been. And the young boy got to experience the amazing hospitality and generosity of the man who brought him in. And this went on for some time. But then some days later, 
After another great dinner, this boy had been well looked after in this house and experiencing amazing generosity from this man. After dinner, they all went off to bed, and then when the morning came, there was a shock in the house. One of his servants went into the room to check in on the boy, only to find that he had gone. And not that he had just gone, but that the fine clothes he was wearing were left there on the bed, and his rags were gone as well. The boy had left and ran back to what he had known. Here you had in this one moment him experiencing all the riches and splendor that he could have under this man's home. But because all he had ever known was begging and poverty, he went back to that because it was familiar. The boy ran back. He could not understand or come to terms with the new life that he was being offered and given. So he went back to his poverty. We do this in our own lives, maybe more than we care to admit. But you are a child of the king and have been given everything you need to live this new life that God has blessed you with through his son. This is what we've been covering as we've been going through Peter, that God has given us everything to live the life of godliness that he has given to us through Christ. That when we exchange those rags for his robes, when we exchange our sorrow for his joy and love, there ought not to be any reason for us to want to go back to our rags. He came that we might live through him because he loves us, that he called us out of our poverty and brought us into his home. It's nothing we've done. If we take a look again at that verse, uh, in verse 10, it says this, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We didn't initiate. We didn't wake up one day and say, God, I'm loving you. And God said, amazing. We love because he first loved us. And the NLT translation of this passage uh, writes it in a way that I, I really appreciate. It says in that first part where it says, here is love. It says in this in the NLT, this is real love. Nothing you've quite ever experienced. Maybe you've understand love in some capacity. But John is saying this is real love. Not the love that we've experienced from human brokenness and interaction. But that this is a love that is unconditional, real and genuine. It's not the fake stuff our world conjures up on February 14th once a year. And displays love as if it's the greatest thing. It's a facade. John says, this is real love. The sacrificial, life-giving love of our God. God sent his son. And the awful truth of it is, is as wonderful as the incarnation story is and what we celebrate around the Christmas season, we, we love this moment in the story of God coming down. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture of God entering into our world for the first time in that Christmas story. But it can't stop there. If, if we could just leave it there and focus only on baby Jesus and the peace and the joy, that would be amazing. If we could just stop there and leave it there, that would be amazing. But you can't have the incarnation without the cross. Because remember, it says he came with purpose. It wouldn't be God's expression of love otherwise. He came to pay the debt for our sins. And Jesus knew what he was being sent to do, and yet he lovingly did it all the same. 
That word propitiation is, is seemingly a big word, but uh, it's just a word that conveys the satisfaction on God's end for sin having been paid for. In other words, it's a re- restoration of favor, a restoration of, of the debt being paid in and, and cleared. Sin hung over our heads like a bad habit, a bad debt. This thing is awful. And God in his holiness and justice could not simply ignore it or look the other way. This would be inconsistent with his character. God, if you could just just forget about that, just look the other way. God can't. It's inconsistent with who he is. Thus, being consistent with his character, sin absolutely had to be dealt with. He couldn't turn a blind eye to it because God is light and his holiness and purity can't stand sin with all of its evil and darkness. It had to be punished. And yet, God again, being consistent with his character in his love, he knew that in carrying out his justice over sin, we would forever be separated from life and love. Jesus then, being sent by the Father, came to clear that debt and bring satisfaction to God's wrath and justice. In his love, he went to the cross and took upon himself every wrong, every thought, every act, wrong action we've ever committed, every action we will ever commit, and took that on himself on the cross and sacrificially gave up his life for us so that as verse 9 already told us, so that we might live through him. That's what propitiation entails. Through Christ, restoration is made. This is the harder side of the Christmas story, but it is also the most beautiful depiction of a God who loves us so much that he does what very few, if any of us, would ever do. Would you give up your life for a criminal? It's his great example of his love for each and every one of us. This is the beautiful thing about John 3.16 when we read it, that our God, for he so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's available to all. It's, It's upon us, contingent upon us to accept it, to receive it. That God's love is poured out. We just have to accept it. Here is love, born in a stable. And we celebrate that amazing reality during this Christmas season that God came down for you, for me. It's joy to the world because the author of life has come to write a story of new life for each and every one of us. We need only to give our lives to him and allow him to write it. I want to close with the words of a hymn by a man named William Rees. He wrote a hymn uh, that, that conveys and, and sums up uh, everything in a powerful way, all the things that I've just been discussing. And so I just encourage you to listen to these words in closing. This is what he says. This is what he's written. Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood. When the prince of life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. On the mount of crucifixion, fountains opened deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. 
Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above. And heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. May this season be a reminder of that love. It's here. It's for you. Remember it. Take hold of it. Experience it. You are loved by God. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful, not only for this amazing expression of your love for us, but it wasn't some superficial statement. You proved it in your life, in your death, and your resurrection. That again, you didn't just come into our world to experience what we experienced, to live as we lived, and that was as far as your road went, but that you went all the way so that you could come out on the other side and offer to us this new opportunity to find new life because of what you had done for us. We could never have done it of our own. But you, the great initiator, not only loved us, but you initiated a plan that for, for many is, is, is mind-blowing, but also so peculiar. Why you chose to come as a baby and not a conquering king is beyond many. And yet, God, you showed us true humility and you showed us true sacrifice that in the giving up of your life, you gave us new life. God, my prayer this season for each one of us is that we would take hold of not just a reminder that you love us, but that, God, you would create pathways and experiences for us to truly know that in our own lives, truly know it, that we don't just know in our head that you love us, but that, God, we've experienced it. God, may you continue to lavish that love on us we, we sometimes miss it. We're caught up in so many of the things in our lives and in our world that we miss these moments where you have lavished your love on us. God, open our eyes to those moments to see that we wouldn't be without excuse to say, you know, God doesn't really love me. He loves that person, it seems, but doesn't really love me. God, open our eyes to what you are doing in our lives and open our hearts God, soften the hard heart. There are many who who want your love, God, but it's kept at a distance. We want to know you more, but your arm's length. God, soften our hearts. God, your word says that when we draw near to you, you draw near to us. God, may we draw ever nearer to you, especially this time of year, as we focus so much on the fact that you initiated first and drew near to us. God, thank you for all that you've done. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.